0: How long does it take in the United States, most people, to go from recognizing, you know, I actually, I'm not just sad, I'm kind of depressed, or I'm not just moody, I've got bipolar disorder. How long does it take from the first recognition of symptoms to getting help and treatment? The mean is 10 years, and in some cases, it's 15 to 20 years, because people are too damn ashamed to admit it, and because the healthcare doesn't prioritize prioritize parity for mental health conditions. How are we going to get people involved in the treatments that work if there's a 10 or 20 year gap.
1: to the deconstructionist podcast, all you beautiful people out there.
2: <laughs> you laugh at everything I say. I do. <laughs> Cuz I never at me. I never me. know what, at me. I never know what you're going to say. <laughs> you always you always throw me off. <laughs> well, welcome back. We got to we have this is a treat that we've been uh, we've been trying to trying to curate for a long time so we we've been looking for like we did we we did kind of a mental health episode um just the two of us um very personal episode yeah like two years ago um but i'm by no means an expert and we've wanted to to get an expert on for quite some time and uh wow we got a heavy hitter here john roped in a whale of a guy here um
1: yeah, Professor and Stephen
2: Hinshaw. Had no idea that Dr. Hinshaw was originally from our home city, home state, Columbus, Ohio. The epicenter of cultural and academic <laughs> uh, advancement
1: in, in the modern world.
2: I, I believe it's true. Yeah. <laughs> but he is, uh, Dr. Hinshaw um, was, was gracious enough to come on our podcast and talk about um, a subject that is very near and dear to our hearts and something that um, we really feel like, especially within um, Christianity and within the church as a whole, like there's a whole nother level of stigma and shame inv- involved in um, the area of mental health. And so we got Dr. Hinshaw to come on. He is a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley and a professor of psychiatry at UC San Francisco. Um, he's got 12 different books out ranging from books on um, ADD to um, he's got a book out about uh, you know the teenage girls and the, the, the unique pressures that they face in today's day and age. But his most recent one is really a personal book about his father who um, in very much in, in the shadows and, and, and silence uh, suffered through his own mental health ordeal um, for the better part of, of multiple decades. And uh, just the impact and the toll that it, that has on your, your family and your loved ones around you, um, not only just the person who's actually personally suffering from it. It's an incredible book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, you know, we go into some of these things in the episode, um, but with the rash of high-profile suicides and just a lot of the things that, you know, we're all kind of just around the water cooler or, you know, at, around the dinner table, just kind of becoming a, a bit more aware um, of what is going on. Like, what is yeah. going on? What, what the heck is going on? And the, the whole idea of stigmatization of mental health that we all sort of know is a problem, whether you have mental health or you know somebody that has mental health issues, stigma is the biggest problem. And this book that Dr. Hinshaw penned and then we based all of our interview around called Another Kind of Madness is exactly about the madness of silence and stigma, like how how tragic and insane the stigma of, uh, of mental health and the silence around mental health Is That's a madness all of itself. So this is a really important uh, episode, Um, really serious, somber, heavy, heavy episode, but uh, one that I also think that you guys will be energized by um, and filled with a a lot of hope because there's just so much uh, to look at and listen to and and there's so much for all of us to just get better at in terms of engaging, uh, whether it's with the illness that we find inside of ourselves or our families. Or our friends, or our society, um, as he says later on in this episode, from the from the top down, from the bottom up, and from the middle out, we've we've got to do a better job um, at, at solving some of these problems around mental illness.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't have anything else really to add because um, I just want people to get to the episode. But um, I think this is a long time coming, and and I hope that people find value in this and uh, find strength and freedom and some of the things that he says. And I just encourage people to go out, check out his, his talks. Uh, We'll put all the, uh, all the good uh, bits and pieces into the show notes, but check out his book for sure. It's um, he's a really wonderful writer. Um, It's a really uh, fun and quick read. Um, And it it just, he infuses in this very personal loving tribute to his own father. um, He infuses a lot of like very important information um, about, you know, the progress that we've made, uh, in the mental health field and, um, you know, all the, all the, I don't know, the things that we still have to accomplish yet in the field, all the things that that we still need to, uh, to work on, um, especially as a society and the way that we support, you know, people who, who deal with mental illness. So highly recommend it. Go check it out. Check out the show notes as usual. Um, and our, and our website and, um, yeah.
1: Without further ado. The Deconstructionist Podcast is honored to bring you our episode with Stephen Freaking Hinshaw. All right, well, Professor Hinshaw, uh, John and I are, are so excited to have this really important and I, I think timely conversation just based on uh, a lot of the things that have been happening in the news and the media. So all the way from uh, California, thank you for taking the time to be with us uh, this afternoon for you,
2: this evening for us.
1: I'm psyched. Let's get going. This is great.
2: <laughs> well, uh, one of the things that we didn't realize when we uh, first took a look at your book is that you're actually from Columbus as well. So we, we share that in common. So <laughs> I,
0: I grew up I grew up in Columbus a long time ago, seemingly in the most idyllic household you could imagine. Dad was a professor of philosophy at Ohio State. Mom was an instructor in English, uh, had studied history and languages and English, and my sister and I were were treated to OSU. 50-yard line, C-deck seats, because Dad had been professor a while. (laughs) So we were in Ohio Stadium cheering on the Buckeyes back in the day. But underneath this seemingly uh, perfect Midwestern uh, veneer was the utter mystery and terror of his absences, three months, six months, or a year at a time. And my sister and I didn't know that Dad's doctor had told him, if you ever tell your children the reasons for your disappearances, you're going into mental hospitals, you have chronic schizophrenia, they'll be permanently destroyed. So silence ruled the day, shame and stigma. So in between this fabulous childhood was this utter mystery and a lot of self-blame, which is why I wrote Another Kind of Madness and uh, got into the field of clinical psychology.
1: Man, so much there. Um, Another Kind of Madness, I mean, when I read it and, and started to work through it, um, you know, starting off with the the quote in the beginning of the book um, by James Baldwin, where yeah. he says, "You know the world mostly divided between madmen who remember and madmen who forget, and uh, right. it, it goes on to say that stigma fosters this denial of human potential so would it be would it be accurate to say that the other kind of madness that you 're talking about is the stigma that suggests we forget
0: there's many there 's many forms of mental disorder, schizophrenia, my dad was misdiagnosed with for 40 years, bipolar disorder, which he actually had, schizoaffective disorder, PTSD, autism, ADHD. We know a lot of research has been done since the time I was a kid to show what some of the, both the genes that make you vulnerable to these conditions, some of the early experiences and trauma that might make them even worse. We have evidence-based treatments for these now, even though we don't yet have cures, Mental illnesses carry a lot of impairment and tragedy for people and their families with them. But another kind of madness, quoting directly from Giovanni's room and James Baldwin, is the stigma and shame that even today in 2018 cling and attach themselves to mental health issues. The stigma is a worse form of, quote, madness than schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, PTSD. That's why I titled the book this. Because if we don't talk about it, if we don't deal openly with it, people aren't going to get help, and we're locked into a vicious
1: cycle.
2: It's brilliant. So the, the the heart and soul of this book is is you uh, finally talking you know talking through this uh, journey uh, with your dad because initially, early on, um, as you said, he he did not disclose what was happening to you. You all you knew as a child was that he would just disappear for long periods of time, uh, and then. Right eventually he started to have these conversations in his study with you and and reveal kind of what had, what had happened. Um, so talk a little bit about your, your dad and initially how you first came to to understand what was going on.
0: So, uh, dad, uh, grew up in, he was born right outside of Chicago, uh, fourth of four brothers. His dad was a Quaker prohibitionist, uh, Virgil Hinshaw senior. My dad was Virgil junior. Jr., but Virgil Sr. helped to get the 18th Amendment passed back in 1919, uh, 19, um, very strict Quaker upbringing. But the first tragedy occurred when dad was three and his mother uh, died at age 40 of cancer, on a, basically a, in a hospital bed in Chicago. Mm. If you lose a parent between three and five, this puts you at pretty substantial risk for having a mood disorder like depression or bipolar disorder later in your life. If you're an infant, you kind of don't remember. If you're older, you can kind of verbally process, but 3 and 5 is a, is a vulnerable age. Mm. Second, dad clearly must have had a genetic liability. Bipolar disorder is one of the most what's called heritable. In other words, the genetic liability is quite high compared to almost any other form of mental disorder. And then as dad grew up in Pasadena, his dad remarried, his mother had been a missionary, his stepmother was a missionary. His stepmother chose him, the the youngest and smallest of the four original boys before she and my grandfather had two more of their own, just Single out for his academic and religious achievements, but also to punish him ritualistically for small infractions. So, as Dad wrote in one of his journals much later, we would have never called it this back then in the 20s and 30s, but I believe that I was a victim of child abuse. We know that if you have the genetic liability for bipolar disorder and you've experienced physical or sexual abuse, and Dad experienced both, you're likely to have earlier appearing episodes. They're harder to treat. And the risk for ending your life is bipolar disorder has a high enough suicide risk. If you put the maltreatment together with it, it increases it uh, even further. So dad at age 16 thought he was going to save the world from the fascists and the Nazis. Back in the 30s in Pasadena, the family moved out west. By jumping from the roof of the family home in Pasadena, thinking that his arms had become wings and the world's leaders would witness this magnificent signal. He'd gone three or four days without sleep. He was in a fast-developing manic episode full of grandiosity. He crashed down to the pavement below the second floor of the house. He survived miraculously, uh, was put in a back, a back ward hospital for six months, where he almost starved himself because he believed the fascists were poisoning the food. Almost didn't make it between 16 and a half and 17 but quickly recovered without treatment. His only treatment then was being tied to his bed. There was no medications, no electroshock, no therapy. He recovered six months later within a week, was sent home, started 12th grade, and the family didn't want to talk about it. They thought it might jinx his recovery. Oh my gosh. Dad went on to Stanford for undergrad. Princeton for grad school, he studied with Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein at Princeton. Pretty darn good education, but as he finished his degree, he thought he could predict the end of the Second World War via telepathy, got quite paranoid. Six more months in a mental hospital, this one Philadelphia State Hospital at Byberry, the the little town that it was uh, built in, now sort of a suburb of Philadelphia, before the hospital got torn down. Unbeknownst to him, the worst mental hospital in America, the subject of the film and book, The Snake Pit, where he was beaten each week by both staff and fellow inmates, and he thought he was in a concentration camp in Europe. Now, that was a crazy, delusional belief. He really wasn't. But when the photo exposés of Byberry came out and then the websites developed in the 90s, et cetera, et cetera, the new men's dorm that opened in the 40s when dad was there, 7,000 men in space for 1,500, regular beatings, regular deaths, not too far from the purposes of the Eastern European concentration camps. In some ways, dad had a metaphorical truth about what the state hospitals were like in the United States, which wasn't so far off from what the concentration camps in Europe were doing. So dad had these brilliant periods of utter normality, and these very wild periods of mania and then mania mixed with depression together, and his only treatment was to be put in some of the country's worst mental hospitals. All through, he became a professor at Ohio State. Once he got out, met my mother, a grad student in history. They fell in love. Dad didn't want to talk about his past much. Would you marry someone back then in the late 40s, early 50s who had lifelong schizophrenia? Of course not. But he would vanish when my mom get, became pregnant with me and then with my sister all through our childhood, again, hospitalized for these wild, inexplicable episodes. But that's when his lead psychiatrist told him, if you ever tell your children where you've ended up, they'll be permanently destroyed. Your wife and you are forbidden from ever mentioning the topic. Wow. This is the shame. This is the stigma. What do kids do when something's not going right at home, but nobody talks about it? Well, in a nutshell, I guess kids can A, start to think that the world's a horrible, random, cruel place. That's not a very good uh, attribution to make. Or B, blame themselves. Mm. At least you have some control. Maybe if I had been a better son, dad wouldn't have disappeared. And if I didn't ask mom any questions, because she made it clear that she wouldn't really tender Mm. them, then he'd come back sooner. It must have been my fault. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until... I went back east to college and came home for my first spring break. I just turned 18. Dad pulled me in a study back home, started to talk about uh, leading with son. Perhaps you should hear some incidents from my life. And I began to realize what my first 18 years had been filled with was the silence and shame around mental illness. So in some ways, this was a liberation. Now I knew what was going on, and I was going to become a psychology major and solve my dad's issues and solve mental health uh, issues around the world. But I was also terrified because I figured I'd be next because I did learn early in college that schizophrenia had a high genetic loading as did bipolar disorder. So because I wasn't talking with anyone, roommates, friends, girlfriends, I shared the stigma. And until I started to open up myself, I became dedicated to the mental health fields. But I was also terrified that I'd be next to go to a snake pit and maybe never come out
1: my gosh it It reminds me something um we've talked about before on the podcast. It seems like one of the one of the general rules in life, and I know that you're you're crusading in this direction with uh the thrust of your work, but you know burying things doesn't really help, but it's it's confronting uh our pain that often brings yeah. us to our purpose and you know so much of our study is often to understand ourselves better and yeah. and what you're doing right now by by understanding the pain of your own childhood and your father is becoming a huge gift to countless people. I I wonder if you could say a few words about how um, confronting some of these things that are ugly in our lives can actually lead to to healing for so many people.
0: You'd like to think that if you're talking with somebody who is pretty depressed and is worried about whether life is worth living, well, you don't want to bring up that topic of suicide because you might suggest it. Believe me, the person who's been depressed has been thinking about that for some time. Now you've opened the door for some dialogue. Wow. You wouldn't necessarily want to talk to me when I was younger about your dad apparently had chronic schizophrenia, had ended up in these snake pit-like hospitals. How shameful, we'll never talk about it. By opening up (laughs) gradually and talking about it, You can deal with it. You can deal with the trauma. You can deal with the fact that you're part of a doomed family, but maybe it's not doomed if you can get help. I tried to get help from my dad. I finally diagnosed him correctly with bipolar disorder once I got out of college, before I even started school. One of his older brothers, who would witnessed him splayed on the sidewalk beneath the house back in 1936, had become a psychiatrist and psychologist, inspired by his younger brother's tragic circumstances. And my uncle and I got dad a correct diagnosis of bipolar disorder treatment with lithium. And for the first time in, by that point, uh, going on 55 years of his life, dad had some peace uh, and had some symptom-free years because we talked about it and dealt with it. So your theme is exactly right. Keeping things buried and suppressing emotions usually doesn't have a good outcome. Now, does that mean that if, and I've been depressed in my life, I've got the genetic liability, I carry this burden, Uh, do I wear a sandwich board saying, dad had bipolar and I've been depressed? Probably I don't confront the world telling everybody I know first thing. Disclosure is a matter of timing, rehearsal, and support. But we can never go to the default that my family grew up with, which is, If you ever talk about it, you'll be permanently banished. If silence and shame and stigma are the default, we're never going to get anywhere as a society.
2: One of the things that, that before, because I'd love to get into um, kind, of, kind of your later life when, when you and your dad really had this this closer connection and were able to talk about this stuff, but one of the things that was really profound to me was when you were talking about just kind of how you dealt with it as a child, and you recount, yeah. you recount this conversation that you had uh, with a young friend of yours by the name of Brian, um, where Brian is recounting the fact that his father had passed away, and you had mentioned that you felt like, in a way, it would have almost been better off if your father had also been deceased, because at least then there would have been some level of certainty. Mm. Well, oh
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was third grade. We'd moved the summer after second grade to our new house, uh, even a little closer to the Ohio State campus, a couple miles from our first house. All excited about the move. We moved in, and then a few weeks later, dad was gone. I started third grade at the new school and all fall, all winter, all spring, he wasn't back. And I thought, what? Where is he? Is he dead or alive? Man. I got brave that fall and asked mom one day at the uh, kitchen table where dad was. And she said, she looked me in the eye with a kind of look that told me, don't ask anymore, saying, Your father's resting in California, Steve. It's best if you ask no more questions. Wow. So that wow. was as much as the doctor had allowed her. So I thought, rest in California, why does he need so much rest? Is it all the books? He reads in the philosophy courses, he teaches, what did I do wrong? I made a friend, Brian, uh, that spring when I was starting to play Little League baseball. Went over to his house. It was kind of a refuge from all this worry I had about where Dad was. But Brian said, yeah, uh, Daddy's up in heaven uh, behind those clouds there. He, He died. He got very sick a couple of years ago. I didn't know what to say because at least just as you mentioned, at least Brian knew that his dad had passed away. I didn't know if my dad was hiding out or dead or no one could talk about where he was living. The uncertainty in some ways and the shame underneath it may be worse than than any truth. At least with truth, you can deal with it and you know what it is and you can cope with it. But when everything's sliding down a slippery slope of shame and silence, you don't know how to deal with anything.
1: Gosh. I wonder if you might, uh, I think it might be helpful because we throw the word stigma around a lot. I wonder if you could just offer maybe a little bit um, of a, of an explanation, um, you know, as a professor, you know, we're your students here today. Um, what, yeah. what, what is stigma and, and why is it why is it such a problem? I, I think it might be worth pausing just for a second to make sure we're all sure. on the same page because it's kind of a big deal.
0: And And in this memoir, Another Kind of Madness, I periodically pause from my childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and my dad's saga to define this term. And so, without making it too heavy-handed or too much like a a lecture course, stigma is a Greek term. Many psychological and psychiatric terms have their origins in in the Greek language. Stigma back in the day, say in ancient Athens, let's say you were walking in the Agora, the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So, agoraphobia which many people have heard of, literally means fear of the marketplace, fear of being out in public. But let's say I was walking as a Greek citizen, an Athenian citizen back there. I might be curious if some of my fellow shoppers at the Agora had actually fought for Sparta or maybe had been a former slave. Well, how would I know? Well, there was a brand burned into their neck and shoulder. Everybody knew. Stigma literally means a mark, a brand mark, a burn so that everybody in society knows your low status. Wow. Now, Hitler branded people in concentration camps with numbers on their wrist. Mm-hmm. Some countries, 30 years ago, when the HIV epidemic became very widespread, would brand HIV positive people so you'd know to stay away from them. Most stigma today, though, isn't a physical mark, it's a psychological mark. You had a dad, Steve, who had schizophrenia supposedly and ended up in the country's worst mental hospitals. Uh, you're a religious minority. Well, here's an, another example of stigma. You're left-handed. Back when we were growing up, my sister turned out to be left-handed, and my grandmother on my mom's side didn't want her to be left-handed. Today, that's not much of a stigma. It's like if you're left-handed, you're You've got good spatial abilities and you go to MIT. You're kind of cool. Right? But <laughs> or a
2: left-handed pitcher. As, so- <laughs>
0: right. as society changes, some things that are, uh, make you a moral outcast can change. But the sad fact is, the tragic fact is today, what are the three groups in our society who receive more shame and stigma? Not the physical brand, but the psychological and then any others. Do you have a mental illness? Are you homeless? And or do you have a substance use problem? Do you use drugs, illicit drugs? Those are the three lowest on the totem pole conditions. They receive more stigma than any other groups. That hasn't changed in a couple of centuries. Why? We know tons more about mental illness. We can treat it. We can identify certain genes that may be markers for it. But we're still afraid. We don't talk about it much. Back before I was born, back in the 30s and 40s and early 50s of the last centuries, if your uh, aunt or uh, grandfather, or whoever died of cancer, you would never put that in the obituary as a cause of death, uh, died of natural causes, died of an unknown illness, because cancer was a very stigmatized disease. You obviously got cancer because you didn't have the moral fortitude to fight it off. What? Well, today, Cancer is a cause. Breast cancer, what's going to happen a couple of afternoons, Sunday afternoons this fall in the NFL? The big behemoths are going to be wearing pink knee socks to dedicate themselves to fighting breast cancer. Because women have told their stories, and it's not acceptable to be silent and be ashamed of cancer. We haven't moved the dial on mental health and mental illness. We know more than in the 50s. There's psychology courses in high schools. The media do a better job of talking about it. But the more we know, in some ways, we're still afraid. What's the public face of mental illness these days? Uh, deranged-looking guys in their 20s who are school shooters. Yeah. Or the people out here in California I see living under the freeways, chronically homeless, chronically mentally ill. If we could open up the dialogue the way we have about cancer, make it a parallel with mental health issues, Congress wouldn't uh, fund mental health treatment and research at a lower level than physical health treatment. People wouldn't be ashamed to get a diagnosis and get therapy or medication if medication's needed. We're still just coming out of the dark ages because we're pretty terrified. Gee, if we think that that person has a mental illness, maybe my own hold on my uh, mental faculties isn't so good. Better keep it silent, keep the strong. Uh, you know, be the strong, silent type, keep the poker face about it because we're still too afraid. Mm-hmm. This is the battle right now to overcome stigma.
2: So I t- to kind of continue on off of what, what you just said, because I, I think one of the quotes you have in the book uh, really just kind of like mm-hmm. swept me off my feet. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't believe it. But I, I think that with all of the, like you said, school shootings that are happening in the news and all these these horrific, violent crimes, Um, There's a quote that you say in the book where you say, In reality, individuals with mental illness are far more likely to be victimized by violence than others, but with rare exceptions, no more likely to commit aggression. So... So part of me is like, why, why don't we hear more about that in the news uh, versus it seems to me like every time there's a, a shooting in the news, the first thing that yep. pops up is, well, this person must have been mentally ill. They must be... It was a crazed lunatic. Yeah, yeah. A
0: lunatic, a psycho, violent. So certainly if you have untreated paranoid schizophrenia or very rare in bipolar disorder, the feeling that everyone's out to get you and you've got to act first. Without treatment, psychosis, hallucinations, and delusions, if it becomes paranoid, that raises the risk of committing violent behavior. That is under 2% of people with all forms of mental illness. And if people are treated, that risk goes down to zero. Far more, just as you pointed out, and thanks for catching the quote, people who've got serious mental illness. Who often lose their education and income are very likely to be victimized by violence rather than perpetrated. But that's not the stereotype. Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. All of the well, what did what did kids see growing up when they were my age or a little bit younger than I? Looney Tunes cartoons. There's Daffy Duck. Right, he's Daffy. He's mentally ill. The stereotypes of being incompetent or violent have, in some ways, uh, Trump, the actual fact that most people, the vast majority of people with mental health issues are desperate to get help, are no more likely to be violent than anybody else. There's exceptions if you're extremely paranoid. But even if you've got those kind of conditions, if you get treatment, your risk of violence goes right back down to the base rate. So we're swamped in a sea of stereotypes that's preventing us from moving the dial.
1: And there's something that you said uh, a moment ago that just... Um a lot of people that listen to our podcast have uh, struggled with uh, different things from a religious perspective that have caused them, a, you know, a great deal of confusion and are kind of wrestling through it. And you had mentioned how um, HIV and even cancer back in the day. I think I think it was in the book you said. Uh, if a relative died of cancer in, you know, the thirties, forties, fifties, you wouldn't even put it in the obituary, right? You know, that's right. That's right. Because there's this, um, there's this old sort of, I I don't know if it's Protestant or puritanical or, you know, whatever, but this inherited religious view that's become sort of the American religious consciousness that you get what you deserve. And so if you're mentally ill, I, I wonder how much you've seen. Um, you know, I think ideas are really, really powerful and, you know, religious ideas are really, really powerful and how much, um, has our religious consciousness as a nation contributed to this overstigmatization of mental illness yeah. in, in,
0: in your opinion a fascinating question and i would expand religious to the moral perspective altogether
1: completely i mean okay? it in almost like a secular consciousness kind of yeah, way not, yeah. not one particular I mean, religion
0: yeah you know, 75 years ago again cancer was viewed in moral terms you didn't have the kind of moral character or, or, or deep inner strength to fight the cancer. You had succumbed. You were um, inherently, uh, you were a cancerite. You were a victim of this illness because uh, you didn't have the courage or strength. Well, today we think that's preposterous, right? Gee, um, a lot of people my age, some people your age wear glasses. Did you lack the moral fiber to have your eye muscles work correctly? It's crazy to even think about that as an idea. Yeah. But if it's their behavior if it's can you pay attention in class, ADHD, Mm. you have some of these beliefs that most people don't, do you really think your life is so unworth living that you would consider ending it, suicidal depression? That feels to us as though any behavior that you exhibit must be the result of your personal volition and will. Mm. Now, we don't want to make the mistake of saying, all behavior is simply a function of genes, and all genes are simply a function of chemicals and physics, and everything's reduced to quarks and atoms. That's too deterministic. Yeah. Certainly, when people have mental illnesses, they and their families need to get motivated to get them treatment. But if if the belief, the predominant belief is it's shameful, you can't even admit it, yeah. then we're stuck where it's the ultimate vicious cycle. The paradox is If you go to your doctor for a physical health issue, you get treatment. You get some benefit often. If you go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist for mental health treatment, on average, you get a bigger bang for your buck than you go to for your doctor for a physical health illness. But that's not the stereotype. The stereotype is once mentally ill, always mentally ill. And it's because you didn't have this fortitude or strength. We've moralized it, even though we know these are actual genetically liable illnesses, but we still think somewhere underneath there's some moral failing, whether it's traditional religion, whether it's you didn't have the fortitude to fight it off. So you're lower than the low. You're the lowest of the low. The stigma attaches to, well, what do we used to think back in the so-called dark ages, mental illness, animal spirits or evil spirits. But you must have been a weak person to let those spirits overtake you. Mm-hmm. Mental illness is still uh, ensconced in a kind of moral, moralistic uh, way of thinking about behavior is all under personal
2: control. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that answer. Yeah, yeah I really appreciate that. That that sure. actually, it actually reminds me of uh, of another quote that I that I remember that I recall from your book where you talk about um, the the. I don't know. I don't know if it's the appropriate approach or, or a better approach to the mental health field, but the only accurate stance is one of humility and integration of diverse perspectives.
1: Oh, yeah. That's good. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: Thank you for capturing that quote in your memory. Um, when I was old enough to have my dad talk to me, well, he, my parents should have talked to me earlier, and family therapy would do that now. But I was 18, going to college. I started to learn from dad about the therapies he'd received that were not very effective or helpful. He was on the wrong medication and the wrong kind of electric shock treatment for decades because he had the wrong diagnosis. Hmm. If we don't diagnose well, if we don't take mental health issues seriously, people's treatments aren't going to help them They're going to actually, in some ways, make things worse. And think of the attitudes. Are you brave enough to go get chemotherapy or radiation for your cancer? We're going to support you through it. You're going to go see a shrink? You're going to take psych pills? What's the matter with you? Can't you fight this yourself? I've been depressed, too. I don't wake up every day smiling. You must be kind of really not the kind of person I am, if you admit depression and take pills for it, we've got this fundamental attitude toward mental health and treatment that's dehumanizing. Mm. It's belittling rather than um, empowering. And we've got, back to the quote, it's either a moral flaw or psychologically bad parenting or your brain chemistry's all wrong and we've got to medicate you it's either biological or psychosocial. No. In fact, it's both at the same time. Yeah. Some people are genetically more liable to coronary artery disease and cancer, but lifestyle choices can exacerbate that. Yep. Some people are more genetically liable to depression or bipolar disorder or PTSD than others, but the life experiences can still shape that. It's not either or, it's both and. Mm. Finally, humility. I'm glad you remembered that some of my dad's doctors that he would report about and other relatives of mine who've grappled with pretty serious mental illness. The stories are the doctors would say, leave him or her with me. I'll give them therapy and cure them or only medication works. It's either or, and we know everything. If you get into the field of psychology, psychiatry, neurology, social work, The only stance is humility. We know a lot more than 56 years ago, but what we really know is is how much we still need to learn. We've got to fund the science. We've got to promote humanity and be kind of humble about the brain is the most complicated thing we know of in the universe. Each of us is sitting here inside our skulls with 100 billion neuron cells, each making a thousand or more connections with others a hundred plus trillion synapses, no computer can yet do what the brain can do to recognize faces or process emotions. No wonder mental health is complicated. But the stereotype is either or, or we know it all among too many mental health professionals and scientists. So what I try to do when I teach at UC Berkeley and UC San Francisco is infuse the excitement about What a field to integrate Neuroscience, genetics, public health, education, psychology, but not to pretend that we have answers yet. Mm-hmm. We've got more answers than we did, but we've got a long way to go.
1: That's so good. And, you know, it's, it's perfect for another question that I wanted to ask you about. I, I was reading one of uh, a book of a contemporary of yours, Bessel van der Kolk. And yeah. He wrote the, uh, the Body Keeps the Score. And there was right. a lot in that book um, that resonated with some of the things that I was picking up in your book, too, around uh, the DSM. And how the system of reimbursements and insurance and money and uh, an underlying, um, I think, problem in our culture that you were just pointing to with the, this over need for certainty all the time yeah. and, and a lack of humility. I wonder how much do these rush diagnoses, you know, if people see it in the DSM 5, I think it is now, and uh, oh, you, you know, spend a couple visits with somebody, you just got to rush to a diagnosis. How much is that c- contributing to the problem that we're talking about right now?
0: Well, I think a lot. And so let's let's kind of back into two phases here. What makes science science? Mm. Chemistry, the periodic table of the elements, right? Sure. It helps organize. Well, in psychiatry and clinical psychology, the DSM, rather than just talking about a thousand different symptoms, maybe they cluster into syndromes and disorders. And But the first problem is mental health issues don't fall into the nice neat categorical boxes of depression or PTSD or ADHD people's emotions and behaviors and brains are a lot more complicated than that yeah number 2 to make an accurate diagnosis given that it's not a perfect system anyway if you're diagnosing someone with bipolar disorder and they're in an episode are you going to trust their views no you've got to talk to their parents or their loved ones you've got to get a history There's lab tests to be gotten. There's tests to be. If you're going to diagnose a kid with ADHD, I do a lot of work in the area of ADHD. Do you think a pediatrician in 10 minutes can sort out who is just a slightly more than normal active level kid? uh, Who is in a terrible school? Who's been the victim of physical abuse and who actually has ADHD? This is going to take a few hours interviewing parents, observing in classrooms, getting ratings, giving tests. Most people get diagnosed by a non-specialist in 10 to 12 minutes. Yep. No wonder people get under-diagnosed and over-diagnosed. And in my work on ADHD, my colleague Richard Scheffler, a health economist here at Berkeley, we teamed up, got grants together, wrote the book together called the ADHD Explosion. We know that ADHD is a real condition, but it can get over-diagnosed if two things happen. School districts think that the only thing worthwhile about a kid and a school is the test scores produced. And if the diagnoses are done in a quick and dirty fashion, in those regions of the country where achievement, 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 test scores are prioritized above all else, and you can get a quick and dirty diagnosis, the poorest kids in that community will jump up in ADHD diagnoses 50 to 60% within a couple of years because it's a convenient label, and because maybe those kids, <laughs> interestingly, wouldn't count in the district's test score average the next time around because they're special ed kids. So it's almost like gaming the system to over-diagnose to raise our national obsession with test scores. We've got to take diagnosis and assessment seriously. We've got to make the right diagnosis when we can so that people can get help. Does everybody have major depression? Does everybody have ADHD? No. But in some days in our country now, it's almost like a badge of courage to get the diagnosis. So we're in a we're in this stigmatized area, and if the diagnoses are given out like, the stigma increases against people with real depression or ADHD because everybody thinks they're just faking it.
2: That's that's fascinating because uh, my my wife in particular also uh, was diagnosed with ADHD at a young age. Yep. And it uh, was actually put on a, a clinical study to see if there was a market for a much higher dosage of uh, a drug. I believe it was Concerta at yep. the time. And uh, it, it almost seemed, at least from her perspective, as if the the treatment was more so to modify her behavior so that she was an acceptable student in class compared to everyone else versus actually treating the actual underlying issues. Yeah. Is that your experience as, as well in these studies? Is that, is that some of the uh, information that's coming out of these? Well,
0: we still have a lot of myth about behavior control. Gee, if I have bipolar disorder, don't put me on a mood stabilizer. It'll squelch my creativity and productivity. Well, in fact, mood stabilizing medications save lives. The most lethal form of mental illness we know of is bipolar disorder. of people with bipolar disorder untreated will attempt their lives, and a third to almost a half of those people will complete suicide. Getting on lithium, getting on a mood stabilizer may actually save your life, but if you're misdiagnosed and you're put on these medications just for behavior control, that's 1984. For ADHD, if you get a real accurate diagnosis of ADHD, the medication doesn't just stifle your behavior. It actually helps you learn better in the classroom and use your creativity and your smarts better. But if you want to keep a poorly managed classroom uh, sort of depleted of complaining students, you get everybody on medication and they're more docile. Medication, same for psychotherapy. Everything has intended and unintended consequences. If we don't bother to diagnose accurately Treatments can become agents of social control. On the other hand, back to bipolar disorder, many artists, uh, performers, scientists think, gee, don't treat my bipolar disorder. I won't be as productive or creative. Once, if they actually have bipolar disorder, they get on the right medication. They're much more productive than before because if you're manic, you can't complete a project. You think you're more creative, but you're not actually because you can't follow it through. So medications can be lifesavers for ADHD, for bipolar disorder, for major depression. But if everybody gets them and they're handed out uh, like candy without accurate diagnoses, A, there's health risks, and B, it's going to further stigmatize mental illness.
2: Uh, talk, talk about that a little bit, too, because y- y- you do a great job in the book of talking about how how far – Uh, the mental health field has come in in a very short span of time just throughout the the lifespan of your father where there was no treatment other than to strap him down initially. Uh, And then, of, of course, evolved into electroshock therapy and some other treatments. And then, obviously, now there's a whole... Host of different uh, medications that that are available. So talk a little right. bit about the progress that we've made, and,
0: and even electroconvulsive therapy (ECT). Even though most people stereotype is one flew over the cuckoo's nest, sure, is going to be punitively, and uh, who wants to get their head shocked? If you've got major depression and you're not very responsive to medications or psychotherapy, the way ECT is done now, very short pulses lots of combinations with individual and family therapy, it can pull you out of a depression better and faster than any medication we know. But again, that's the accuracy of the diagnosis. What's the big point here? We need to fund research to know both the genes that make people vulnerable, the early life experiences, and do an even better job of developing and promoting psychotherapy, better medications, And often it's the combination of the work I do with ADHD. Some kids with ADHD do pay attention better than in in class. But if you don't work with the kid and the school and the family, the kid may be slightly more compliant but isn't going to learn or make friends better. It's, again, the integration. Medicine for the most severe forms of mental illness in combination with individual family school therapies, that's going to bring people the skills they need rather than just, well, I guess we better keep people under better control. Let's uh, uh, give them medication and h- hardly monitor it and and not back that up with therapy.
2: Well, my, my wife will be very pleased to hear you say that. Uh, she, has, <laughs> she has stories that are horrific to me. Uh, she has one where they they literally pulled her desk out of her class and stuck her in the corner because wow. she had troubles focusing. Yeah. And it's like, so I, so I think I related a lot of that to um, kind of where you talk yeah. about like the uh, just the uh, effects that it has that that still are carried on years, years after. You know, she's been out of well, school for uh, quite some time. So
0: it's quite some time. And so just a, a- lot of this um, uh, all too common story uh, 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 related to people like your wife here in Berkeley, we have the largest study of girls with ADHD in the world. Wow. Following them from girlhood to adolescence to the earliest years of adulthood, now to their mid to late 20s. It's bad for a boy to have ADHD, even though you know some people say, well, it's just all boys, the Tom Sawyer syndrome, which is yeah. inaccurate. <laughs> but if you're a girl and you don't focus well in class and you blow out the birthday candles at the birthday party, but it's your friend's birthday, not yours. So you lose your impulsive. The consequences of ADHD for girls as they grow up are actually worse than those for boys because it's gender atypical. Mm. We're in fact finding tragically that girls with early ADHD, especially if they're quite impulsive, not just inattentive, but quite impulsive as girls, their risk for serious cutting and other forms of self-injury and suicide attempts, it's one in four to one in three. Man, Even something as you say, well, ADHD isn't as serious as bipolar disorder. If you're a girl and you don't get treatment early, the consequences can be devastating because, again, it's gender atypical. There must be really something wrong with you or your family if you're a girl exhibiting those behaviors.
3: No one's left to pull me their toxic memories. Killing time with kindness reserves your
1: You know, I know we're, uh, we, you know, maybe got a couple questions left for you, but I'm, I'm, sure. I'm thinking right now of our, you know, our, our listener who's, who's sitting here listening to um, this, this episode and um, getting the gist of your work. Hopefully they're going to go out and buy this book because they'll enjoy it uh, immensely and, and learn a lot from it. But um, getting a little bit more practical here. So um, how do we start to, let's imagine we're somebody that needs to have a conversation or, um, let me back up even. You know, what, are some sure. pra- what are some practical ways that we and our listeners and anybody else that's interested can start to break down stigma.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a deceptively simple and very complex question. How do we deal with climate change? How do we deal with racial prejudice? How do we deal with the big issues of our day? No single strategy is going to work. Right. Right. We're going to have to go top down, bottom up and middle out. So let's take (laughs) stigma. It's now illegal because of the Americans with Disabilities Act, celebrating its 28th anniversary this summer, uh, signed into law by first George Bush in 1990. It's illegal to be discriminated against in our country if you have a physical or mental disability in public or in the workplace. That's great, it's a civil right. But if you're on the job and you're getting discriminated against, you've gotta to go to HR or go to your boss and say, I've got depression or I've got PTSD or I've got agoraphobia uh, or, or claustrophobia. I can't t- take the elevator up to the fifth floor and I need an accommodation. The vast majority of suits brought under ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, are from people in wheelchairs who need a, a ramp or a wider uh, door to their office. People are too ashamed to bring up their mental health issues for fear they will get fired. Yeah. So it's not just policy. We got to enforce anti discrimination. We need parity. You get the same health care coverage for mental health issues as you do for physical. That's top down. That's great. But if we don't open the dialogue, if we make it so that you're still too ashamed to go see a shrink, to go see a therapist, if we make it too shameful for you to admit to a friend or coworker, no matter your know, schoolmate, that I need some help, we've lost the battle. I'm going to quote a statistic here that's our colleague at Harvard School of Public Health, Ron Kessler, who's a mental health epidemiologist. He's been studying this topic at kind of the 30,000 foot level for a while now. In one of his big studies done a few years ago now, he got a bead on, this is adults now, not kids, who have mental health conditions. And he did with a subsample of them, not just their questionnaires, but interviews. Long story short, How long does it take in the United States, most people, to go from recognizing, you know, I actually am not just sad, I'm kind of depressed, or I'm not just moody, I've got bipolar disorder. How long does it take from the first recognition of symptoms to getting help and treatment? The mean is 10 years, and in some cases, it's 15 to 20 years. Because people are too damn ashamed to admit it, and because the healthcare doesn't prioritize prioritize parity for mental health conditions. How are we going to get people involved in the treatments that work if there's a 10- or 20-year gap. Top-down anti-discrimination, bottom-up, changing people's ways of disclosing. Most, if you know somebody well and they admit to a mental health issue, you want to support them, not reject them, and middle out, you know, what, what are we going to do in the middle to go up and down? A different set of media images. It's worked for cancer. We've got a long way to go with mental health the main headlines still are violence and incompetence. Yes, there's more human interest stories. Yes, there's more nuance. But if you look systematically, it hasn't changed much in 50 or 60 years. The lead, the L-E-D-E lead for most media on mental health issues is you're dangerous, violent, or incompetent.
2: Wow. One of the things before we let you go that I feel like we, we, we want to pick your brain about um, just because it's been so heavy in the news, especially this last year, uh, that to me seems like if it was any other disease, it would be considered an epidemic by this point. And I, you, you would think yep. that our country would have mobilized in some fashion, but it's the issue of suicide and, yes. and there's a, there's a stat that you give at the end of your book where you talk about the fact that as of, uh, 2014, three times more Americans die from suicide than from homicide. And then you go on to give some other equally, um, uh, impactful statistics as well, so is this is this becoming some sort of epidemic and and what's going on how do we how do we help fix this problem
0: well uh, we'll need five more podcasts for that because it's a <laughs> huge, huge issue, but in all seriousness uh, so we're now in uh, August of 2018 and earlier this summer as just about every American knows uh, from the headlines Kate Spade. And then a few days later, Anthony Bourdain had ended their lives by suicide. Yeah. What some people missed is right in between the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention publicized their latest national statistics on suicide. And what everybody thinks is true, suicide rates have gone up palpably in the United States 1998 to 2008 to 2018, the last 20 years, for kids, for teens, for young adults, middle-aged adults, and older adults, the number two cause of death around the world, first world, second world, third world, for girls 15 to 19, is now suicide.
2: Oh my gosh. I mean,
0: there is, now, be a sociologist, is it life stress, is it the vulnerable genes we have getting exacerbated by uh, social media, social media, a good thing or a bad thing. Again, we could take a lot of podcasts to get into that. But the point is, most cases of people who get to the point of feeling their life isn't worth living have an underlying mental health condition that is treatable if you can get into treatment, if you're not too shamed to admit it, if we had the right health insurance to reimburse it. One of the statistics that came out back about six weeks ago when the CDC released their data was, they said, it's interesting in our statistics, for the first time, more than 50% of suicides that we documented through these national data were not associated with a known cause of mental illness. What's the key word in that sentence? Known cause. Known. yeah. Right. Are you going to admit to depression or bipolar or PTSD, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Now, certainly, you don't have to have a chronic mental disease to feel that your life isn't worth living. Life is getting more stressful. But if we added known and unknown or unadmitted causes, the vast majority of people who come to this terrible point of feeling their life isn't worth living have been dealing with depression, anxiety, and other symptoms of mental health issues, obviously and quite honestly, for a long time and get to the point of hopelessness.
1: Wow, man. It's heavy. It's
0: heavy. It's very heavy. But the good news is there's hope. Uh, I know we've got to wrap up. But one of the things we're doing, I work with a group called Bring Change to Mind. This is Glenn Close's anti-stigma organization. So glad you Uh, brought it up. Yes. Glenn called me uh, six springs ago. I was walking across the Berkeley campus from my lecture to go play basketball, which I try to keep full-court basketball up to keep my own mental health alive. (laughs) And Glenn Cold called me, said, I know about your work, Dr. Hinshaw, on mental health and stigma. Would you become a scientific advisor to bring change to mind? I have, and for the last six years, I've helped with and helped witness Bring Change to Mind is doing a lot. Public service announcements, you know, ending the stigma of mental illness at that level, but also working with college students and even high school students, not necessarily those with depression or bipolar disorder or anxiety disorders. We have high school clubs now. We've got 180 clubs starting this fall in a couple weeks around the United States. Chess club, rugby club, Latin club, the Stigma Club at your high school, where the kids create the curriculum creatively with our guidebook to talk with themselves and their families, and school administrators and teachers, and their community about ending the stigma. I think in ten or twenty years, as these high school students, their social activism is and their empathy is is, is off the charts. Is. We're going to have the change in dialogue about mental health that we've had with cancer uh, earlier and we've got to start young. It's not just teaching the facts. If you teach high school kids, here's what schizophrenia is, here's what depression is, they'll learn the symptoms and they'll become more stigmatizing at the end of the semester. They learn the stereotype, the humanization and the social action and the self-discovery is improving attitudes and making kids feel like they've got to do something to end stigma. So I wanted to end on this positive note that if we can start young with young people moving forward, I think our society will change over the next 20, 30, 40 years in terms of
1: fundamental attitudes toward mental health. I 100% agree with you. I believe that.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we, we absolutely, I mean, we had probably three or four more pages of notes. We could keep going forever, but <laughs> um, perhaps another time. But, um, but before we let you go, where, where can people go to keep on top of what you're up to and to find out more about these clubs that you're talking about and, and sure. find your books?
0: So, uh, my latest book, um, my 12th of 12, is Another Kind of Madness, colon, a journey through the stigma, hope of mental illness. St. Martin's came out last year in 2017. Uh, you can go to Amazon. You can go to Stephen Hinshaw Author. That's Stephen with a PH. StephenHinshawauthor.com. That's my author website. Bring Change to Mind. Bring Change, numeral two, mind.org is the website which which will tell you all about the public service announcements, the college program, the high school program, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI. NAMI is another place to go. Google me, Stephen with a PH, Hinshaw, uh, get a list of the talks I'm doing and lectures I've given, uh, other projects I'm involved with. Talk about your feelings of vulnerability, with your friends, your loved ones, keeping it silent, maintaining that MO isn't going to work any longer. And I think that's the single biggest thing we can do.
2: Amen to that. Oh man. Well, the the book is incredible. I I highly encourage everyone to go out and get it. It's a um, absolutely beautiful tribute to your, to your late father and your family and, uh, and just a, a beautiful way to, to, bring a personal aspect into talking about a very important issue. um, Definitely to us. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks
0: for having Uh, us on. I'd love to be back on another podcast whenever the time is right. Absolutely. This is, uh, this is a cause everyone will benefit from personally and in terms of their family and friends and the whole society. It you're not, it's not a sign of weakness to get help, Uh, see a shrink, get therapy. It's a sign of strength. Do we let our cars run into the ground? No, we get tune ups. Same thing for our emotional well-being and mental health. And uh, thanks for having me on.
1: Ah, oh, you're amazing. So yeah, I think a round two is is in order. We'll be in touch. <laughs> thanks so much. you so much. You guys. Thanks you. Steve. Too. Take bye.
3: care. Bye bye.
2: that hour just flew by. Yeah. I mean, there's a few episodes that we've done in the past where I legit, uh, have probably two pages worth of notes left over that I'm like, could have definitely gone there. But you know, there's certain questions, obviously like when you get a guest like this, you want to make sure that you cover. Um, and so, um, definitely, you know, could, could definitely easily do another episode uh, with him and hopefully in the future we will. But, um, Gosh, like, I, I can't get over it. I mean, I underlined, and I highlight a lot to begin with, but mm-hmm. I underlined and highlighted a ton in this book. Oh, there's so many pearls, I'll call them. Just, just gems.
1: Uh, and not just information, but perspectives, I think. Yeah. It, you know, there, Obviously, there's a lot of great information, but you, you find that those aha moments, as the great Oprah Winfrey would, would call us, <laughs> yes those aha moments usually come when you realize that uh, someone has a perspective that's far more clear or helpful than the one that you currently have. And sometimes it's just a small turn of phrase that can give you a new perspective. And around mental illness, um, so, so, so many um, connections between other things like his whole take on uh, faith. I mean, we could have talked about that all day long and how this old sort of um, blue collar um, American dream kind of faith consciousness that we have uh, writ large in our culture all over the place. It's just, you know, ubiquitous and our culture has created so many problems for so many people. Just mentioning a few, you know, cancer patients in the early 1900s to 1950s um, were stigmatized HIV patients in the eighties and nineties um, people that, that contracted those viruses or, or illnesses um, were stigmatized because of this faith conscious of pick yourself up by your bootstraps, try harder. If something has happened to you, it's probably, you know, coming back upon your head, you know, from if you've, you're right. reaping what you've sowed, you know, as it were, you all these other pithy bumper sticker theologies that um, become part of the, the cultural consciousness. I, he could have gone on about that all day for me. And since stigma is what we're talking about, what becomes a, a bigger driver of stigma than
2: faith consciousness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's and there's so many different facets to dealing with mental illness. I mean, he briefly touched on the fact that um, it, you know, mental illness uh, affects young teenage women differently uh, than it does um, men, and you know, specifically with women, young women who are who are suffering from um, or dealing with ADHD, um, and, and likewise um he talks about with 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 men um you know we've talked about it before where you know young men it's it's kind of this weird stigma in and of itself where it's like well just buck up yeah. you know like you're you're just not tough enough just then sit still if you're sad you're like oh you're oh, sad yeah, too. that's yeah. cute you know Aww. it's like it it's this weird like you know, hyper-masculine mentality that is, has that bled over from, from prior generations that still exists, you know, and, and until we can get past this idea that it's some sort of like weakness or, or uh, deficiency in the person, then, you know, the people who need the help the most aren't going to get it. Totally. Um, so yeah, I just, there were some, some statistics in the end of the book that just kind of blew me away. And, and one of the things that we didn't get a chance to talk about is where he he's having this conversation later in his dad's life. And his dad said, you know, there are times I wish that I had cancer instead. And he's kind of like, what? And he's like, yeah, because you know, like he's just kind of recounting the fact that to have a physical illness is more accepted uh, than having a, a mental illness. And I mean, that just speaks oceans in terms of where we are, the disparity between the way that we treat mental illnesses and, and physical illnesses and, and how far we yet have yet to go. I think that so much of what
1: you're talking about right here um, deals with something that has come up on our podcast so many times in so many different ways. Um, I'm thinking about Pauline Boss right now and our episode with Pauline Boss on uh, yeah. ambiguous loss. So we have such a low tolerance for ambiguity in our culture that you would rather have something that feels more definite and concrete because- just like, you know, the old, like, I think it's, was it Stephen King? I, th- I think that said, you know, there's nothing scarier than just the unknown. Yeah. I, Some, so. I don't, I don't yeah. know. I, I always attribute that to Stephen King. I'm probably wrong. Somebody fact check that for me. <laughs> he's written plenty, so he's There's a, a good lot. chance. <laughs> but, but there is this thing that, you know, we are way, especially in our hyper-rational, addicted to certainty culture, we are far more terrified of that which we can't name or know because we're so uncomfortable with uncertainty and ambiguity. That we would rather have something like a tumor than this kind of, you know, nebulous, foggy idea of mental illness, yeah, uh, which, is so, which is such a problem. It's so, we are so addicted to certainty that we can't even venture into the realms of our humanity that we need to venture into because we don't have great labels. And so we rush to things like the DSM-5, if you don't know what that is, it's the diagnostic manual used. Uh, by mental health professionals to identify and, and diagnose disorders, and we, you know, rush to these labels because oh, oh, I got it now. At least I know what it is.
2: Yeah, yeah, and 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 just by na- the the nature of mental health or mental illness, rather, is there's so many, um, as Dr. Henshaw um, talked about, there's so many different factors that contribute to mental illness. Yes. It's not like Oh well, you have uh, strep throat, so we're going to give you penicillin to treat it. It's pretty, you know, pretty straightforward. You know, this is what it is, and this is what we give you to treat it. Right. Well, that is not the case, and it's not necessarily, uh, you know, treatment for me. Dealing with depression is not necessarily the same treatment that you're going to receive. So, you know, for me, I need uh, a combination of of therapy, like as my my dad calls it, I go to the talk doc. You know. And also, I, my body just doesn't produce you know, enough serotonin, and so I need, I need medication as well. And so the dosage that I'm on, the medication that I'm on, is very different than, say, somebody else who's dealing with a, you know, a similar issue. They may need a totally different medication, totally different dosage, uh, totally different combination. They may need, may need to go into therapy once a week, whereas maybe I'm good once a month. So it can it completely, it varies so much that, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's the fact that there is so much ambiguity and uncertainty there um, it makes people very uncomfortable. Mm. So much here,
1: man. There's so much here. I, I guess my hope is just that um, maybe listening to this would give people some hope. And my hope is that people would have hope, you know, and encourage and, and yeah. to talk about this more and to seek help to help others seek help, to um, become people that advance help in this in this area, like he said, from the top down, bottom up, and the middle out, because yeah, it's a problem, and we're watching it unfold culturally is, is a huge statistical spectacle. I mean, it's awful. What's going on?
2: Yeah, and I, and I think – for a lot of us, you know, for a lot of you probably listening at home, you're like, well, this is this is one of those massive problems that I don't know how I can impact it. You know, kind of like people talk about voting. You're like, well, I'm just one vote, you know, in this sea of millions and millions of people. Well, I, I think where it starts and where you can help is helping to dispel the stigma in your own uh, uh, sphere of influence. Meaning, you know, I, for me personally, it took me uh, months before I even admitted to my own uh, the Bible study group I was going to at the time that I was on medication for depression that I had sought help that I had tried everything and, and nothing was working. And so I needed to, to, uh, to try some medication and go that route. And years later, I'm like, what in the heck? Like, why was I so afraid to tell people like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do the same thing if I had like, like I said, if I had strep throat like diabetes or diabetes or whatever, like I, I'd be like, yeah, guys. I went in and got medication. I'm feeling way better, you know. Like, so I think that's where we start, and that's where you can start as 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 a uh, an individual and a sea of of people, you know. As you start there, and and we start having honest conversations about uh, mental health and mental illness, and say, yeah, it's okay, you know. Like a lot of people are impacted, um, and not just people who struggle with it, but maybe you have friends and family members who, who struggle with some form of mental illness and that's okay. And the more that we start to, um, talk about it and dispel some of the the misnomers and the misconceptions, the, uh, the, the more help that's going to be. And the, the better this is going to get hopefully in the future. Right. We're not going to be able
1: to tackle like all of mental illness, but we can tackle that other kind of madness, which is the stigma and the silence, you know, which is why I love the title of his book, you know, The other kind of madness is to not talk about it. The other kind of madness is to repress it. And if you're out there and you're struggling with mental illness and you're not able to talk about it, um, please, you know, just grab somebody's hand, you know, reach out to somebody, even if it's a hotline or, you know, something. Uh, I think John's got the number here and, and break that other kind of madness. That is within your control to do that.
2: Yeah. If, if you or or someone around you, you know, is, is in a a dark enough place and, and you feel like, you know, you're going to hurt yourself or, or, or someone's going to hurt themselves. There, there is a suicide hotline, at least in the United States. It's 1-800-273-8255. Um, please call that. There are people, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, there's somebody there that can, that can help you. Um, but, uh, please seek help. And, uh, as always, um, it's been an honor, a privilege for us to be able to bring somebody to you um, like this. Hopefully, it, it benefited you in some way and 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 helped. And um, as always, um, the band this week is yeah, who are these sweet tunes? Hidden Hospitals. Um, some uh, some talented young lads. Uh, the music is awesome. Um, really big fans, So it's really happy to be able to to use them for this episode. So if you like their music, please go out and support them. Follow them on social media. All that stuff will be in the show notes. And, of course, like when we put it out in social media, we'll um, give them a nice shout-out and stuff. So follow our playlist on Spotify. And, uh, oh, yeah, and we're our podcast is actually on Spotify now. So yay! just another place where you can find us.
1: And thanks for everybody that's supporting us on Patreon and all those other ways. We love you guys so much. Anybody that's listening to the show or engaging in it or just having conversations of your own out there, Um, not letting somebody take the journey for you, but taking it on your own. And, um, it can be scary, but man, is it fun and exhilarating and find some community. And we're glad we get to be a part of yours for now. We are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock and I'm John Williamson. Keep deconstructing everybody.